All right, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I am, as always, extremely uh, grateful, humbled, and honored that we are joined for episode two of our Archetypal Pantheon series. Not that that's the uh, official name, but I think that's somewhere along the lines of where we're going to be delving into uh, with this great series joined with us today uh, by Miss Mira Taylor. How are you, Mira? Uh, how's everything on your end? And what are we looking at today with respects to uh, today's topic? Uh, I'm doing wonderfully. Uh, I hope that everyone else watching this is as well. So one of the things that I have been kind of interested in lately, and, and this comes from the fact that I actually started in marketing, um, for those that don't know that, uh, but that that was sort of my reintroduction to my love of psychology. Um, but that from a marketing perspective, part of the reason I left was that there was a lot of stuff I was being taught uh, from the marketing world about how to exploit um, or sort of manipulate certain ego identity attachments, such as can be present in archetypal behavior patterns. And, you know, kind of that that never felt really good to me. But then as of late, I've been really noticing that, you know, understanding my own teaching that I teach a lot of my clients, which is how can we make the problem the solution? So what I ask myself is, how can I make this problem or this thing that I see as the problem a solution? And sort of came to this understanding that even for me, it's a, something that, you know, we can build an awareness of the same strategies and psychological methodologies being used in marketing for our own self-awareness and for our own self-observation and for kind of getting to a place of deeper understanding with, you know, particular ego identities that we've attached ourselves too much to or in, a, in an unhealthy way. So a lot of these marketing initiatives play on the more uh, basic Jungian archetypes, which um, I'll, I'll pull up as we go on in the show today, but that a lot of these archetypes are things that just like we talked about in the last one, places or areas of expression that we can all exist in at any time. This is sort of that more uh, positive attribute uh, of thinking of yourself as a shapeshifter instead of sort of that kind of vilified context of what it means to be a shapeshifter. Um, I would say the word adaptability always sounds friendly to everyone that realistically you're just learning how to be egoically adaptable um, and, and choose your state of expression that works for you best. But then when it comes to these more uh, ego attached identities that are used for things like marketing, you can actually use them as a way to really learn about yourself. So, you know, for me, I used to be the person that, you know, grew up and was kind of the emo kid and loved all that sad music and screamo and, you know, everything that was sort of rebellious and different. And so it wasn't hard for me as I deconstructed to realize like all you had to do was place a sugar skull on something. And I was really interested all of a sudden, right? But this had to come from my own basis of awareness of what marketing psychology utilizes to sort of connect with you. Um, so one of the other interesting concepts of psychology that's used in this is a concept that's referred to as participation mystique. And participation mystique is something that's actually inherently born or inborn into us uh, in our first relationship, which is this sort of unitary biopsychic field that we experience as, a, uh, as infantile beings. So that when we're, you know, when we're born into the world, we basically have a total participation mystique where we have not yet come to understand that we as baby are separate from mom or separate from the world. These are ego developments that have to uh, 
happen over time. So particip participation mystique is something that's more of a Jungian um, concept of psychology, but Eric Neumann really delved deeply into it and in his concepts of childhood development and ego child development. But the reason participation mystique works in marketing is that they play on this understanding of uh, inherent and sort of subconsciously uh, inbound participation mystique to get you to have that same participation mystique with an object. So when you have a highly, um, you know, unhealthily developed, highly spe specific or specified ego, for example, you will see something that speaks to that archetypal understanding in you subconsciously, and you will have a subconscious participation mystique with that object. Now, all of a sudden, you want that object because at a subconscious level, that object is you. It's an extension of you. It's a representation of you. And every, well, and by you, I mean you in quotes, right? Because this is, you know, ego identity from the standpoint of the things that you think you are versus the totality of what you really are. But that, you know, we can kind of look at each of these archetypes. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, I would love if people leave comments for you. Uh, or, you know, respond to you after this to kind of speak to the archetypes that stood out to them the most. But again, this plays into the same uh, thing of over-identifying with one particular zodiac archetype, for example, um, or one particular deity, you know, personification of, of an archetype as comes present from mythology and things like that. So have you experienced any of that, you know, as you have kind of been on your journey, has there been a part of you that kind of had that realization or observation of particular you know, marketing things, for example, or color schemes or, you know, things of that nature where you're like, wow, that's me. I just got to have it. Or I, I know I'm attracted to that because it feels like an extension or expression of me. Oh, looking well, first off, I appreciate your, your full, uh, full breakdown of this, uh, not just for myself, but for the audience, but also at the same time, I've personally experienced this quite avidly um, with respects to uh, more recently in the last couple of years of my own personal journey. It's been more so, as we said before we started recording, um, the maybe this speaks to potentially me uh, self-analyzing in a beneficial way, getting closer to the the potential core layer of what the archetype is. Last couple of years, it's been more of a um, sort of like a, dare I say, esoteric sway of things that I feel I want, then I don't want. And then looking big picture, it's like, wait, I don't want either or. But prior to that, with a material or tangible object, I must wholeheartedly admit that for me, for the longest time, honestly, it was it was Apple products, straight iPad, iPhone. Yeah. It, it truly was. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I was never, you know, um, odd by it so to speak but looking back it's the it's the marketing of it it's the way in which also in a more tangible way we, a lot of people uh, tend to realize that I think other companies from a marketing perspective may have also emulated this and you may know more about this than myself well, I don't know if how many people I don't know how many people might remember this but at one point that was actually kind of a subconscious thing that was integrated into the marketing campaigns especially when Android came around so right. it was either you're an Apple user or you're an Android user, pick one and stick to it. Yes, I remember. <laughs> pick actually. a side, right? That, that's the other I, thing that comes along with this, with the participation mystique that's used in an unhealthy way is that whole duality mindset of, we'll use marketing to get you to pick a side. And the side you pick is the one that your ego identity most 
has most of its participation mystique, uh, mystique attached to, basically. Right, where your intent is then directed and you're, again, one of those people in the line at that store waiting for that new prod right, when really it's not so much... I would I would humbly uh, postulate it's not so much the product itself as much as it is the internal excitement that's telling you you got to get this, you got to get this and then once you get it I've actually had a couple instances like for example where I would go this is years ago and I would go get this you know an Apple product for example and believe it or not this speaks to in my opinion the strength of these archetypes which is that these egoic ones I would there would be a small part of me that says okay what's the big deal it's just, you know, it's just a new phone. And then right. there's a larger part of me that didn't feel natural, but it, it kept telling me, no, no, David, you love this. You love this. When really, I, I'll be honest, I, I was like, it was conflicting inside of me. So is that what we're speaking to here? Uh, yes, basically. And actually, to that point, exactly something that I have worked on that I also just give as a tip to a lot of people um, who need help on focusing with things like reading but I have worked really hard to be able to hear my own voice in my mind. Now, one of the things that has come along with that, interestingly enough, is that you also begin to be able to understand when a voice is not your voice. Because guess what? It doesn't sound like you in your own head. But most people, if you ask them to hear their own voice in their mind, can't do it. It's something that is difficult for them. Um, less true for people who are, you know, entertainers and musicians or people of, of the sort of nature where they're constantly listening back to their voice, especially from that, you know, more observant state. But the interesting thing about this is you can also then ask someone to like hear the voice of a celebrity in their mind and it's right there. Right. It's easy. Right. So these, these are kind of like those false idolatries that can happen that remove the reality of self from internalized reality or make you, you know, non-existent in your own internal reality that are sort of important for people to pay attention to. Um, but it was, that was the most fascinating process for me with all of that is just this, the more I was able to really connect with my true voice in an inner auditory way, the more all of those other things that were like, get a haircut, get your nails done, you know, buy the new phone, Buy this new product because it looks like an extension of you. Um, the more I was like, hmm, that's not my voice. <laughs> and so there's an interesting push-pull effect that happens when this first happens too, which is that then the rebel archetype in all of us go like completely pushes away and, and just says, well, I want, I don't want anything now. Everything is the enemy, everything's trying to use and exploit me, everything, you know. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a process that we all have to kind of go through, but it's because that of that process that you start to really ask the questions internally that are important for self-actualization. Because now all of a sudden you go, well, I don't really want to get the phone right away, but what do I really want? And then you have an internal dialogue about it instead of just going, well, something's telling me to get the phone. So I'm going to just buy a different kind of phone now. Right, that's sort of like uh, there's almost a oppositional effect that happens that again has to happen, I think, for us to get to that self-actualization standpoint, but that once you start understanding that many of these sort of consumed exterior voices that we uh, you know, allow inside of us 
once you start to identify them, you kind of have that rebel effect where you're just like, nope, I'm not going to listen to anything from anyone ever again anymore. <laughs> right. And do you um, think that's too much of a jump on the pendulum, so to speak, or no? No, I think we have to experience it. You know, this is why things like meditation and getting still are important. Um, one of the things that marketing really plays on too is that productivity mindset that, you know, is sort of a unhealthy uh, ego development that we get, which is basically based on this idea that if you see something, you have to do something. Mm. That you can't just experience it and decide for yourself whether or not it requires action. That the productivity mindset that we live in that you know marketing can kind of play on is that we see something and because of that sort of neural uh, you know, mapping that has happened for us from productivity mindset, we have to do something. So this is why uh, fast food restaurants, for example, or just restaurants in general, when you're on the highway, will place their billboard a certain number of miles away from their actual store. Why? Because they know that's about how long it takes for that subconscious process to turn into something where it actually becomes a reflex or sort of a false reflex of thinking that you're hungry. Wow, I did not know that at all. Yeah, that's so those particular colors are connected to hunger too. Um, that yellow and red and that blue that are used in almost, and, and everyone knows, I know when I say those things, everyone knows because it's the color that's used in almost every fast food restaurant. There's a specific kind of red that's used. And it's the same, it doesn't matter what fast food restaurant you're, you're looking at. I could name five of them, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, Arby's, um, Wendy's, they all have that red, right? Right. Um, that yellow that I think both McDonald's and Burger King utilize. Uh, but all of those colors are specifically from a marketing standpoint, something that has been understood to initi initiate a psychological sensation of hunger in the body. Right. So it's also, you know, a lot of this comes down to mind-body connection awareness too. And that's a lot of the work that I've done as well, which is that, you know, part of the marketing world plays on an understanding that it can create a mind-body connection for its purposes. So paying attention to where your hunger actually starts, whether it's a thought or, you know, a bodily response or reaction that you get, right? Like we all know what our stomach feels like when it's hungry. But what's fascinating is to notice, and, and you can kind of like do this, you can do some science experiments with yourself at home with this. I actually have. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, if you're in a state where you're like really not that hungry, pull up one of these logos or pull up one of these colors. You know what? We won't even give brand right. identity time. Pull up one of these colors. See if you start to feel hungry. Holy Notice crap. the difference, right? So this is part of how this problem can become the solution is that by knowing that this is how a lot of these things work, people can actually utilize it for that sort of self-observation awareness where they can go, huh, my hunger didn't start in my body. Therefore, it's realistically probably not a genuine hunger. It's a sort of subconsciously integrated productivity response or action response to a color that isn't the same as genuine hunger in my body. Right. Now to that, I did want to ask Mira, the, the to everything that you, we've been discussing and to precisely what you just said there, this idea of countering that sort of um, archetypal egoic influence, whether it's, you know, um, my being in the line at Apple many years ago, or whether it's people lining up for that Big Mac or what have you, I wonder 
if you think there is an extension or a sub extension or a subset to that egoic archetype. And what I mean by that is basically imagine I basically hypothetically, if you could, if you will indulge me for a moment, I, I absorb everything that you just said and I apply it and I'm standing in line at that Apple store and I go, you know what? No, I don't want this at all. This is not what I want. Do you think there's an element that attempts to influence me to sort of say, this is what you want rather than continuing to look within self sort of redirecting so i maybe i don't go to apple but maybe i'll go buy a, a big mac or maybe i'll go buy a, an android you see what i'm saying do you think there's an attempt to re-steer that that internal vehicle metaphorically um i don't think necessarily i i think that a lot of that is already pretty much in us from a standpoint of survival mechanism that's been working, you know, that has had been working for us for a pretty long time as far as the evolutionary process goes, but that we've reached a point now where it's sort of uh, become more obsolete, right? right? So, you know, this is thinking about that there are actually places in the world where you can walk around and you only eat something when you're hungry because there's like, there's food there. You know, whether it's from a tree or, you know, a, a stand or whatever, it doesn't have to be something that you plan into your day uh, too, which is, I think, important for people to understand also is that even that sort of chronological time set plays a lot into this productivity mindset that makes us go, uh, you know, we have to do something about it or we can't have wasted our time, right? So that, that's probably the first uh, sort of chronological time mindset that you would have had if you were in that line and decided you wanted to leave it, right? Right. That voice goes, you've already been waiting here for an hour and a half. You're really going to give up? Right. Or, you know, something along those lines. Now, in some ways, this voice has become us because we've allowed it to exist in us for so long that that really, you know, product and productivity driven, actionable mindset. But that's where this work becomes important because it's not necessarily that you don't want the phone, but maybe you want to wait a month or two. Why do you need it right this second? You know, so for me, I got to a point where it was like, I never want the phone right away because I know that basically I'm paying to be a consumer uh, beta tester. Those first two months of any technological product when it comes out is, you know, something where you are basically paying for the product so that you can be a consumer tester for the company. And that's whether it's, you know, intentional or not, that is just the reality of the technological community because there can only be so much beta testing done on a pre-consumer standpoint. And they know that those first, you know, two or three months of once the product is actually in the market is when they'll actually get the most information back about the things that are not working with the product or the, you know, the things that are becoming an issue for the consumers with the product. So I, I've always used that as my sort of way of uh, rationally understanding why I would prefer to wait on things like technology, especially. Do you, do you find, uh, Amira, before we get into the Jungian archetypes and, and all of that, which I know that we've been, we've been delving into, but do you find that, for example, um, these, um, do you find that the marketing industry has sort of been repeating the same quote unquote time old tactics in relation to these egoic archetypes? Or do you find a bit of a, a new introduction to a new, not saying this is good nor bad, but again, uh, I say that carefully, but do you find that the transition to a new technological paradigm has either amplified or de-amplified some of the tactics? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Um, okay. And I think that that's because that's the only way that 
it can go, right? Is that once there's a realization that a particular image isn't working as well as it used to, how can we amplify the image, right? How can we make the image or the logo or logos more, you know, more specific to some of these things that are going on? And, you know, it's fascinating to see even in the last like five to 10 years, especially that the duality mindset in general has been throwing people in two directions and making things more and more reactive. Well, what is reactivity? The reality is reactivity is you instantaneously uh, kind of correlating to that productivity mindset and feeling like I have to choose, I have to do, right? Those are the two, the two main things that happen for us is one, I have to choose, and then two, I have to do. And if I don't do those things, I am without worth. That is sort of the bare bones root of why this mindset works, not only for marketing, but also in things like political campaigns, for example, or when you're watching the news or when you're having a conversation uh, with a friend where you know maybe you don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly with them, but there's this sort of egoic response that says, I either have to affirm them or make an enemy of them. That there's no like you know yeah. uh, the art of debate, if you will, has sort of been lost, and you know I hope that it kind of returns because I think the most productive, the most genuinely productive conversations we can have that have nothing to do with actionable results and everything to do with just a genuine rapport and ability to connect between human beings and observe that someone can think differently than you and right. also evolve. I think that's another thing that's been sort of fascinating with this too, is that, you know, even when people have friends or family, for example, and we've seen this a lot in the last two and a half, three years, that they'll have family members that are going through some of these awakenings or major changes or like major deconstructions and reconstructions of self. And it's almost like they think that there's something wrong with these people. When the reality is that evolution and adaptivity are the basis of everything that makes us move forward as a species and as creation. So I think the other thing that's been happening with the marketing is that there's a, a part of that sort of context or arrangement of folks who understand how that works, who don't want, they don't want to have to keep doing the work to evolve and change that system. So they're trying to use it as a way to get people stuck where they, they look at evolution or adaptivity or things like shape-shifting as, as the villain itself, that, you're that you don't have to change, right? Or that you shouldn't change. And it's not to say that you have to change, but that you know, there is a reality that to, you know, being adaptable and evolving in life is an important part of the process. We can all look back and see different ego developments that we've had, uh, whether it's through our, you know, our childhood ego development into our adolescent ego development into then usually uh, that sort of college age, uh, early career ego development, and then that sort of final stage of self-actualization, which deconstructs all of the ego development that's happened thus far and says, what is working for me? That's what I take. Everything else can go away. And I'll just keep moving with it, with what's working for me we can apply this to um, uh, individuals as well, like people in which you surround yourself with uh, in within the orbit of others. Yes. So even in friendships, you know, there there's a sense of participation mystique that can happen if you have an unhealthy ego development, right? That, uh, you know, for me at this point, 
I really like to think for myself. And so I've realized that now I'm having this group of people that don't all necessarily think the same as me, but they do in the sense that they all think for themselves. And so that's felt much better for me than the ego development I had that was sort of very highly identified into, this is the music I listen to, this is the, the type of person I am, these are the things I stand behind in perpetuity, right? Because that's what all my self-worth was attached to, not just within myself, but within the friends and the friends group and sort of the um, environments that I was engaging in, they also reflected that. So getting to a space of deconstructing the ego development back to self and beginning self-actualization will actually help put you in more spaces where people think for themselves. And so they are the same as you in a sense, but that because they think for themselves, you're all going to be able to have rapports and genuine, you know, dynamic conversations where everyone can have a different thought about something or see things differently. And it's no longer, uh, you know, that duality mindset response of, well, you don't agree with me, you're the bad guy now. Or are you really my friend? Because you, you think totally differently than I do. You can still be a friend with someone and, and think totally differently than they do. Right. And sp speaking to that point pertaining uh, to like the subset of participation mystique, uh, you brought up something I really, really like the, the, the term unitary biopsychic field, which again, I think speaks to everything you just said, but also do you, in, in your opinion, Mira, do you feel that there are certain egoic archetypes that attempt to, whether, again, inherent in our nature or something that's influential externally is probably a different conversation, but do you find that these different um, archetypes influence these unitary biopsychic fields? And if yes or no, to what extent could we say that this is a um, something leading to tribalism? And I'm not trying to elude negative or positive connotation to tribalism. I'm just saying, do you find that that's sort of these archetypes? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, this is, so I'll give the perfect example, sports events, total participation mystique that right. happens there. Is that, and, and, and so it's really, it's not actually so much tribal mindset as it is herd mind. And herd mind and tribe mind and sort of that tri that sort of, uh, and I won't even call it, um, you know, there's all sorts of negative connotations that have been given to the indigenous nature of things. Ironically, most indigenous cultures actually had a strong reverence for the concept of the shapeshifter and there would be like dances and, um, you know, songs and, and rituals you would do to really bring that out of you, that sort of avatar state. Right. But from a participation mystique standpoint, yes, of course, sports games are an excellent example of this. Um, I'll try and think of something else. Uh, I think, you know, those are the most that way, probably. I think, you know, political environments too are very much that way that, you know, once you kind of assign yourself a role or ego identity of this is what I am and this is what I stand for and this right. is what I stand behind, there's this, it plays into that survival mechanism that says, I must be with others that stand behind it with me. Does this lean in, in your opinion, does this lean into instinct or does this lean more into the environmental influence or maybe both? Um, I think that it's an exploitative arrangement of instinct, if I'm being quite honest. Wow. So I, you know, again, this is one of those things that uh, for me, I, interestingly enough, I've always loved watching like uh, college sports more so than I have sort of the really brand identified um bigger sports that are like the paid for sports because I don't you don't get that uh push as much 
when you're watching college uh, games, for example. Right. So you, know, you think about the difference between college football and then, you know, the NFL, where the NFL has is very intentional about participation, mystique, right? That you you have your team. And that's a lot of what people will ask you even. What's your team, right? That you have to have this ego identity attachment to a team and why? Because of their symbol, right? And it's interesting to know that logo or logos is originally a word that refers to the word of God. So it's fascinating that we chose the word logos to describe or logos, you know, from a, they, they aren't exactly phonetically the same as you express them, but that they're written pretty identically. That right. this whole idea of identifying yourself with a brand identity of a team then hyper fixates you on identifying with others of your kind. Instead wow. of having a willingness, you know, you think about how someone, if you're walking down the street and you see someone, uh, let's say, uh, what's, a, what's a team you've followed? Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, let's say. Hockey okay. Team. Sure. So sure. who's their, who is their um, rival? if you will. Uh, Montreal Canadiens, let's say. Okay. So if you walked into a bar and saw a group of people with Canadians shirts versus your team shirts, where are you more likely to step in the direction of in the bar? Oh, my, my team. I'm going to feel immediately, maybe even ignorantly presumptuously that I'll share the same views as them because they got the same jersey on. Right. But we know at a rational level that that's unlikely, right? That this is just a sports team and that it speaks nothing to things like political affiliation, philosophical ideologies, how people view the world, what other activities they engage in in their life. It's literally just a symbol that you have a participation mystique with because you've identified to it and you go, that's me, I'm gonna go there, right? But that we can also see how limiting this is because now there's this whole group of people this whole group of individual beings that you have closed yourself off to because of a symbol. Now, why do symbols deserve to have that much power in anyone's life? They don't unless they are very specifically chosen symbols and self-created symbols. So, you know, for me, even though it's sort of an old time practice, part of the reason rune is in uh, my business title is because runes or sigils are self-actualized images that you can create that represent an ideology that you personally attach to them. So if you're someone who's working on deconstructing away from symbolic uh, ego attachment or logo attachment, right? right that right. sigil work can actually be really beneficial to you. You know, think about some of the things that you want to represent the things that you are looking for from life at an ideological level and make a, a sigil for them that's personal to you, that's only yours. And in, by doing this, you kind of work with this understanding that everything can be symbolic, but not necessarily in a way that is subversive and controlling, that it can be something that's a co-creative process instead of a process that you're feeling pushed and, and pulled around by or limited by. Because the reality is that these duality mindsets and the way that they employ the symbol and that participation mystique um, or you know, brand identities and participation mystique is that they, they end up closing off all the other options, right? There's this part of you that goes, this one is me. But what it's also doing at that exact same time is 
none of these other things are me and I'm closing myself off to the option of them ever being me. You're limited to that one. Right, limited to that one metaphorical slice of and, pizza. And sometimes it's not just one, maybe it's two or three. Like, I, you know, there are a lot of people who are willing to move around in probably two or three uh, particular ego identities. But that, and this sort of goes into the Trinitarian concept of, of orthodoxy and why we have some level of okayness with that. But the reality is that any of them are available to you in the right moment and learning how to use that, you know, for this example, exactly learning how to use your awareness of your attraction to, you know, three or four products out of the 20 and asking yourself, why is it these three or four products? What does this tell me about myself? What are the healthy aspects about this archetypal expression that I can hone and accept? And what are the unhealthy ones that are keeping me from having a willingness to look at any of the other products or even view the other products as enemies of the product that is me, right? That's, that's the other thing that happens. Um, I'll give a, a silly example of this, which is another one that happens like I think back when we were younger and kind of that like 2005 to 2015 uh, age range was Gatorade and Powerade. And it was like, you either had to be a Gatorade person or you had to be a Powerade person, right? You couldn't, um, you know, and actually beer companies do this too. We know that beer companies do this. Well, they, they will, uh, you know, Oh, it doesn't even matter which one, honestly, they, they all kind of do it, which is that not only do you have a participa uh, participation mystique and acceptance of this beer company is my identity and I identify with them and I, that's who I stand with. You also inherently go, all of these other beer companies are my enemy. Whether you consciously accept that truth or not, there's a reality that even then, if you like, there are people who this goes so deeply to that if uh, we'll use the bar example, if you're the person that orders a particular kind of beer, and another person you just met orders one of those other beer companies that you've made the enemy of, judgment instantly arises. There's this question of, ooh, interesting, because right? egoic archetypes subtly influenced you to have that boom, jump type reaction. Yes, you're different from me. That means you're potentially unsafe is, is again, sort of that root basis um, survival mechanism that comes out of the psyche as a reaction to this hyper, you know, uh, awareness of these symbols and images because of how exploitative marketing has been with them. Ah, so now to that, when we look for example, that's why things are so extreme now because they had to keep, you know, the best way to get you to pick one thing is to not pick other things or make an enemy of them. So it's like taking a Venn diagram and then separating the circles, separating them apart. Yes. Right. Which is, of course, not true, right? Because all things have similarities. But the more that it separates them, the easier it is for you to feel like you have to pick just one and stick to it. This Maybe is how people make, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to, brand loyalty, right? We know that brand loyalty is a thing. How is brand loyalty built? By participation mystique. This product is you, and it's an extension of your identity. Right, and so uh, let, me, let me refine what I just said. You're not in reality splitting the Venn diagram. The illusion is being given that there's a split between yes. circles, right? And they focus on the things that are different. 
Well, and to a, to a certain degree, that then becomes a truth for you, right? Because belief basically shapes our realities for us. And so the more at a internal level, you start to separate those circles, make them non-unitary fields or non-connective fields, which is not how things work, right? We know that even at a cellular level, things converge and have to coincide and amalgamate and, and you know share structure with each other right. at a physical level. But the more you do that internally, the more self-fracturing you're doing, the more you are splitting yourself into all of these different pieces or fragments that you know, you're still all of you, but it, it, this is why people begin to feel exhausted by life. Because all of a sudden, every time they experience a new environment, a new person, a new product, a new infomercial, a new advertisement, a new um, show that they watch, I gotta pick a side. I gotta pick an ego identity that fits this side. How do I fit into this community? Because that's how I'll survive. That's where my worth is but that this isn't actually a healthy way to exist. It's exhausting for us. This is why people feel overwhelmed by life in general um, as they sort of go through life. And it also contributes to that sort of martyrdom complex too, because what do you always do once there's an enemy? You have to make a hero of yourself. And what does the hero have to do with the enemy? It's gotta find a way to get rid of it or defeat it, right? Right, 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 right. So with actually with that said, I was wondering if it would be okay if I could share my screen with you um, regarding the, uh, forgive me if this is not the most ideal uh, depiction of the Jungian archetypes, but I, the reason I, I bring this up is because I wonder if, uh, well, first off, let me ask, would you deem this appropriate to fit the, the different archetypes? Uh, no. Uh, yes. So I, I have one also that we can share that speaks specifically to the adaptations from the marketing field of these archetypes, but we should go through these first too, sure. right? Yeah. So, and realistically from the point of understanding that these are all of us, there is no part of us that should, you know, we should not be looking at these and going, which one of them am I? Right. Which one, you know, there are probably, and if you do look at them and some of them stand, stand out to you the most, again, this becomes a point of self-observation, of self-awareness to understand the ego identity that you've been sort of most programmed into thus far, but that if you're in that ego identity and you're feeling an understanding of yourself not feeling healthy or balanced or like, you know, life doesn't feel good for you, and you have an observation that these are these, you know, one, two, three, whatever archetypes that resonate the most with me. Okay, what are the ones that are missing that would balance that out for myself? How can I intentionally create more expression and more space and growth for that archetypal existence in my life instead of just continuing to like ride the, the programmatic wave of marketing that pushes products to me um, or jobs to me or people to me or idols to me that are based in that participation mystique of the archetypes that I resonate most with as I am right now. Right. Now, before we get into looking at your, uh, your, your chart pertaining to the more marketing affiliation side of it, I did want to ask a bit of a, uh, I guess, a complex question, if you want to call it, which is that, say, for example, someone inhabits three archetypes. Uh, I'm just going to label for the sake of uh, visual for the audience, the innocent, the orphan, the hero. Now, say, for example, they're tr via their biopsychic field through uh, potential other, you know, epigenetic influences and all that, they're influenced to uh, um, 
orbit around other individuals that have, say, for example, the innocent, the orphan, but instead of the hero, for example, say, I don't know, the, uh, the ruler, let's say, do they gravitate to that third new el archetypal element or do they gravitate, in your opinion, to the, the ones that they find they can resonate and have in common, if that makes so sense? What's interesting is that you're going to attract both. Oh. You're going to attract the things that feel oppositional to it so that you have a choice point of deciding how you can learn how to let that part of yourself in. Or, may, or, or you'll make an enemy of it, right? Which is what a lot of people do. Um, or you'll create false idolatries about a different archetype is another thing that can happen. So for, for your example, the hero might falsely idolatrize someone who lives in the ruler archetype. Ah, I see. So, so like in that friend group, even though you have a hero complex, which realistically is a martyrdom complex, if we're being honest, um, <laughs> you know, someone who engages in that more controlling ruler aspect, which is sort of a fascination to me anyway, because anyone who's a good ruler is actually not that controlling. Um, but that sort of identity within the group is one that then the hero makes a false idol out of. Instead of asking, how can I accept the ruler archetype within myself? They go, ooh, this individual is the ruler which isn't healthy either. It creates space for self-degradation and, you know, basically unequal opportunity in the group for self-expression. You've created that, that person that is, they're using a, a potentially falsified justification to see the ruler as the hero, hence the approach to, to one another. Yes. So in that particular one, also, you might see that the hero is constantly going to the ruler and asking, what can I be the hero for? And so they're no longer even thinking for themselves in that point. They're going to the leader or the ruler and saying, what can I be heroic about? Lead me to my heroism or realistically control me in my martyrdom. Right. Okay. <laughs> See how language can be used so very differently with these, but the reality <laughs> of them and how they feel in the human body as someone who particularly existed in that archetype, uh, that archetypal arrangement actually, um, is one that doesn't feel good. It usually feels like suffering because guess who you're never going to be enough for as the hero to the ruler. The hero is never good enough to themselves and it's also never good enough for the ruler because the ruler actually loves the fact that it can give you tasks and that you go out and feel like you have to do something about them. And the ruler is never pleased. You have to, it wants to keep ruling, hence the never ending sp uh, spiral metaphorically. Well, I think realistically it wants to keep controlling, right? right. That, that, yeah. that true leaders, that true, um, you know, uh, bringers of peace, for example, which is realistically what we all want from a genuine leader uh, or ruler is someone who allows the people to speak to what their peace is and allows for greater self-expression or allows for a deeper understanding of, self, of that self-awareness that allows you to accept that leadership role within yourself, instead of feeling like if someone else feels like a leader, that's a threat to me. That's the biggest issue with someone who lives in that ruler archetype is that if they come across someone else who also lives in that ruler archetype and an unhealthy expression, they go, you're a threat. Instead of accepting that leadership can be communal and peaceful and intended to have genuine rapport for you know, creating a better world, basically. Wow. Okay. I really appreciate that a ton. Uh, 
truly thank you so much for that. That actually helped personally also at, in, enlighten me in certain regards. Would, would we be able to look at your, uh, your screen? Um, oh, yeah. Regarding, uh, yeah, you should have the ability to share. Yeah. Okay, so here they're basically the same, but this one goes a little deeper into what each of these things really mean, uh, right? So this is how brand identity plays into and notice that there are convergent points, even with this, that three in one thing. Um, so the creator, the ruler, and the caregiver all still want to provide structure. And so it wouldn't be surprising for a group of individuals to have this sort of convergence, either within self or within the group, where these would be, you know, kind of the three people that get along the best, let's say. But then look at ironically what it what is oppositional to it. This is part of why I like this wheel because it shows you what's on the other end of the spectrum, right? Right. The hero, the outlaw, and the magician, who ironically are pretty much the same, just in a, a opposite end of the spectrum expression, want the same things, but in a different way. This is what creates an oppositional arrangement. So power and control. We can pretty much admit that power and control are pretty um, similar understandings at a subconscious level. That if you're someone who wants power, most of us associate that sense of power with having control over others, right? Mm. So then the opposite, the other opposites of this would be things like service and liberation. Uh, the people who think, you know, there are a lot of people who think that if you're someone who lives in a state of service, that you live in a state of servitude and that you are unfree, for example. Um, and so the liberator and the caregiver have a tendency to be oppositional because they view themselves as, uh, you know, living a life that the other person wouldn't want to live, uh, but that they also are constantly looking to change this other person to help them see the light, if you will, right? So the right. liberator looks at uh, the caregiver archetype who's very you know, egoically identified to it and goes, how do I liberate this person who's in servitude? And the person who's in service looks at the outlaw who's intending to liberate and says, how do I teach this person to you know, be, be better? Or you know, whatever it is that the mindset is. But we see this all the time in people, you know, especially in the religious communities, who have loads of people who believe that we are supposed to be in service to something greater than ourselves and look at outlaws who are against that and want to teach them how to be more virtuous, right? Would be kind of the context of the, uh, of the language that someone might use, but that the liberator looks at the caregiver or the, the person who's in service and, and wants to free them. They think that they're you know, a slave to the system. So part of the reason it's important to work with all of these understandings of self is to one, identify them in a way that it's contextual to you as you are in the present moment. Ask yourself if that feels healthy or unhealthy, you know, balanced or if it's creating more balance for you or imbalance for you, suffering for you. Right. And then taking the next step to say, what do I want this archetype to mean to me? You know, most people go through life and they look at things like this, um, or even some of those, uh, you know, tests you'll do at work that help you understand your personality type. And they go, oh, okay, this is who I am. 
Instead, how can you ask yourself, okay, this is who I am right now, then go to the next step. What does that mean I want to be? What would I rather have it mean for me? Right. Um, so each of these things has kind of a, let me see if I can pull up. Um, uh, there, are, there are like some brand examples that exist here. And let me just see if I can pull them up and kind of show them a little closer. Will it let me? No, of course. Oh, yes, it will. Okay. So uh, these are the infographics. All right. So the outlaw archetype. Rules are made to be broken. This is also the rebel archetype in a lot of ways, right? Um, so it literally, this breaks it down completely. The brand voice is, we're all about being disruptors. We're all about being rebellious. We're all about being combative, right? So if this is the egoic uh, identity attachment that you have, are you ever gonna have peace? No, because all of your self-worth is attached to being combative. Um, can we also even notice the language. You don't have to settle for the status quo. Demand more. Can we right? also argue, Mira, that this would also be that there's also a constant need for pursuit of that combative language or feeling? A thousand percent. That's how they that's how they get that brand loyalty, right? Because now the next time, I mean, this gets to a point where people even pick the commercials they like because they like that brand. Right. They like the voice of that brand. And while there's nothing wrong with that, you know, there is a place for discernment. But if you become a person that idolatrizes the archetype as it's told to you it should exist or as it's spoon fed to you, you know, you're not going to have a much feeling of free will with inside yourself if you keep staying with the status quo. The irony is that even though the whole point of this, this particular archetype is to break the status quo, guess what this archetype as a marketing position needs as an understanding, a status quo. Right. You have to have a status quo of, of calling yourself the outlaw and never being willing to disrupt but, that or right. rebel against it or combat it. You're only supposed to ever just be the outlaw so that they can sell the, continue to sell those products to you. So you can continue to connect to and have that participation mystique with that voice or uh, that message or that imagery, those visuals that present to you. And then other outlaws, you want other, dare I say, sub outlaws to orbit around you. Yes, Yeah. basically, uh, because that's, that's your survival mechanism. And it also is how your ego feels most self-affirmed from a place that's exterior. So most of this also really plays into the idea that people are no longer self-affirming. They have to get exterior affirmation from others. But that realistically, the goal of self-actualization is also to, to become self-affirming so that you can be confident in your stance, but still open-minded. Mm. So you can become more flexible mentally and less rigid. Um, this is why neuroplasticity is so important. Brand identity and, and brand marketing don't actually leave much room for neuroplasticity, interestingly enough. Wow. Let's see here. So the reason I like this too is that uh, you know there's even like there there are even particular idols that this archetype plays into. So James Dean being being an example, um, 
And admittedly, that's someone that I definitely had an archetypal idolatry for before or appreciation for, right? right? But that there's even color palettes that apply to these archetypal expressions more. So as we kind of go down these, um, you, you know, they'll give examples. So Harley Davidson is an example of this. And mm. we instantly, you know, I think most of us, now that we've looked at a lot of these concepts going down, even in this conversation, now we're looking at this and going, oh, I see it, right? Not I see me anymore, but I see it. I see that this is something that is expressing a certain voice or uh, intending to connect to a certain uh, expression of myself that I maybe am too attached to. This is like that whispering voice, so to speak, that is not yours, of your own. Yes. Uh, well, it is and it isn't, right? Because if you've accepted it as yours, then it is. Right. But having the willingness to observe how you interact with a logo or a slogan or you know a brand message will actually help you have deeper self-understanding. So, you know, I, I hope that people kind of look at these um, things and, and I'll uh, share the link to this website with you in case you want to put it in um, the show notes or anything, because it gives Please. an excellent breakdown, uh, but that it kind of shows you like a full deconstruction of how these things work within a marketing context. And these are the things that as a marketing professional, I was being taught from a psychology standpoint that made me remember that I love psychology, but also made me realize, ooh, is this really how I want to be using my understanding of psychology and, you know, how the subconscious works? Because it's feeling very controlling <laughs> instead right. of creative, right? Right. I got you. Right. So the magician is probably one that you've been experiencing lately since you talked about that sort of pull to the esoteric. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, we are all of the archetypes. We've got to learn how to love each one of them. Right. But as you walk through the world and experience things like brands, having the awareness of the ones that you feel most drawn to. So the magician is obsessed with, uh, you know, this is how the whole concept of manifestation has become kind of trendy, right? That there are all sorts of manifestation coaches out there that'll teach you uh, the magic of manifestation and, you know, how all you need to do is learn enough to know how to make everything yours, right? right. And while I am someone who genuinely believes, genuinely believes in the power of the mental landscape as a projective force, I also know that it's becoming trendy and that there are a lot of people who are using brand identity or brand expression to try and align with people who live in the magician archetype and sort of exploit that for, you know, whether they're coaching services or products or, you know, there's a whole lot of this happening right now. Now, why? Because we've been, we have been living in the age of the ruler and we're moving out of it. So of course, the thing that we're going to experience first and foremost, after leaving that ruler, uh, you know, the idolatry of the ruler archetype is the magician. It's complete opposite. Right. Um, Got you. So what's interesting about this? Again, never ending. Brand message. Tomorrow is brighter than today. Well, technically what you've already done is define happiness to tomorrow. And there's a song about that in a musical. 
tomorrow is always a day away. Instead, asking yourself, like the more powerful thing you can do as, at a personal level is say, how can I accept the things that I want as I am in the present moment? Where are those spaces that I already have them so that I can continue to grow them instead of looking at the brand and saying, if I buy this thing, it will bring me a sense of power, which is basically what these things play into. It's always pushing tomorrow to the, to the further ahead. It's always just further ahead like that, that the end of the tunnel that never comes, no matter how much you run to it. Right. It's yeah. the next product. It's the next movie. It's the next story. It's the next narrative. It's the next, you know, whatever. It's the next service. Whatever it is, it's always one thing away, not mm -hmm. present. Right. Got you. Um, which, again, doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing because the magician is one of the uh, archetypes that really pushes society forward. Mm. You know, it's pretty innovative in a lot of ways. Um, and the innovator is its own archetype. But the magician is pretty innovative, too, in the sense that, you know, you look at even a company like Dyson and you think about their brand and message. And it's always about how they're technologically futuristic. They're already in tomorrow. That's why you should buy the product, right? Right, 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 right. This is the in, the, it's on its way to being in. It's in that yeah. transition mode. And happiness so is happiness is tomorrow. Tomorrow is brighter. Our product exists in tomorrow. That's exactly how that arrangement works in that particular dynamic. Wow, that could be used both for very beautiful things, but also very terrible things as well, and yeah. Of course, right? So this is the thing that's important to remember with all of these too, is that as I'm speaking to how they exist, I hope that everyone remembers that if it feels like a problem to you, it's also a solution in some way. But you got to be willing to ask yourself and make a self-actualized decision about how you can make a choice point in your own mind to make it, to create it into a solution for yourself, whether that's through self-understanding or an appreciation of, you know, how can I be more of a magician in my life instead of having to have having to have that participation mystique with an object to connect to the magician in me, right? Because this is the other thing that happens too, is we don't know how to uh, create that sensation or rapport within us if we don't have that understanding of how to be a shapeshifter. It requires a product or a movie or a conversation to create that resonance with us instead of us self-actualizing the resonance. So, you know, companies, this is why things like Disney work, because every time people experience a Disney movie, right, or a particular um, Disney show that they really connect to the archetypal rules in those uh, shows or movies, and they get the goosebumps and they get that resonance, they're connecting to that particular archetypal expression. But the problem is that they then think, I have to watch the show to get that emotional experience for myself. Ah, uh, that, that, those, those few, but prominently placed it's almost i would say strategically placed uh goosebump moments in a film so for example the let's say avengers infinity war when at the very end when they're about to fight thanos the villain and you have all the heroes come together it's that that um conjecture that buildup of many years of all the different marvel movies and now they're all in one and that speaks oh. to an well, let me tell you something. If you're in a movie theater or if you're sitting with a group of friends and you're watching that who have all picked an archetype themselves, right? you also experience a extreme uh, environmental participation mystique 
because now that resonance is not only happening for you, but there's a collaborative re resonance happening for the group. That's so the now what group. has to happen the next time we watch the show? We can't watch it alone. We have to watch it together. And now more tickets have been purchased and, 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 and all of that. And to that does, that, does that speak in your opinion to the biopsychic field? Yes. Right. So that bio, again, that biopsychic field is a positive for us. It's a, it's a beneficial thing for us to experience. It is actually more so what that state of unity consciousness that a lot of us are hoping to move toward um, would be experiencing all the time. But if you are having a biopsychic experience with something that feels like the enemy to you, that feels awful, right? It feels like uh, you're, you're in a battle with yourself for example, right. uh, but that, you know, from the standpoint of our, our child development, that biopsychic field feels the most blissful to us because everything is actually out of our control. And from an infantile standpoint, that actually feels amazing to be in the, in the total or totality unitary field arms of our archetypal, um, Eric Neumann refers to it as the original great good mother. That we're intended to experience. Could this so, be that, that fly on the wall metaphor? Uh, no. Okay. What? This is something you explain that further? Sure. The, the idea that when, you know, uh, someone says, oh, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that environment, mm -hmm. not be interactable, but observe, observe what's going on. So the baby, um, the baby isn't even really observing yet. That's a part of ego development that comes later because observance requires an understanding of self being separate. Uh, okay thank you okay i appreciate so that, that biopsychic field that exists for a baby just understands that mom world and whatever i am which it hasn't just made a choice point or decision about yet is one um which you know i think we i mentioned it a few times in our previous discussion about that uh jill taylor bolte um stroke of insight video but one of the things she talks about is having a unitary field experience because of her stroke. So what's interesting about this is that to the, to the adult mind, this is incredibly jarring. You go, what the is happening? Mm -hmm. Why am I touching the wall? And I am the wall. You know, why can I not, why can I no longer sense the boundaries between myself and other things? Because all of our individuated self has attached to identity in a way that makes us go, the only way we're worthwhile is by being us as individual. Whereas for the baby in the biopsychic field who hasn't had that more adult over-rationalized uh, and controlling concept of reality, they just are, they just exist. And so again, these aren't necessarily bad things, but it's important to understand that even from a, from a baby development standpoint, that as you're sharing that biopsychic field, you know, a lot of the things that are happening at a subconscious level for one's own mother, for example, can then subconsciously become integrated for the baby while they are experiencing that biopsychic field for the first one to one and a half years of their life. So let's say you are born uh, to a mother who's got a lot of self-rejection because of the way that that baby came to be. What do you think it's subconsciously integrated in that biopsychic uh, field from a very young age, that unitary field? Right. Of rejection now becomes the context of arrangement for that baby at a subconscious level also. And so it has an impact on ego development. Does this, in your opinion, speak to the aura 
the the the, the different variable states of auras of, of people yes definitely wow. um, and so i would say even ego identities have you know they talk about how people have particular colors as their sort of auric field and that there are people who can see colors or see people's auras right well guess what i wouldn't be surprised if we went through and kind of uh did some comparative study if they arrange quite specifically to these archetypal expressions and for example the color palettes they coincide with wow 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 i okay well first let me say that I, i'd love for you to finish your thought but i did want to ask and I, I i didn't mean to to bring this up so suddenly but if we could over the next couple minutes sort of cap this here only because we've covered so much in the last hour i'd love to delve into yeah, i think you you and i are pretty efficient at uh getting yeah i was gonna say I'd be, across pretty quickly. Right. I, I i love this but i also want to i'm trying to do my best to ensure that the audience absorbs too so i'm thinking maybe we wrap up with the magician personality and say the next two personalities we can do on a say a recording next week or the week after if, if that's all yeah. right cool that, that this is incredible i want also let me just say i want to thank you so much for this entire conversation it's been mind like i mean let me just show you here this may look like doodles to you but to me this is a big deal so like i i got a lot of stuff down thanks to this and i appreciate hey, you got a lot of, you got a lot of sigils down <laughs> <laughs> right right exactly exactly so but, i you know writing even even that sense right there's a reason it's called spelling and, uh, you know, taking notes on things is something I do all the time to help me have a deeper understanding of things. So, um, yeah, we'll kind of finish on the magician. But, sure. you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who instantly see the, the image of the Lord of the Rings and are like, I'm in love with that movie or that story, right? Um, and, and what is it about that story that you're in love with? Is it, you know, something that's separate from you or is it that sense of participation mystique because it uh, resonates with you at a sort of archetypal egoic level about things that have happened thus far in your own life as an archetypal expression. So mm -hmm. part of the reason, like I, I actually don't watch movies or TV anymore. Um, you know, I watch YouTube videos and things that feel important to me from an informational standpoint or a learning standpoint. Right. Uh, but, you know, I started realizing that I was just self-replicating my own story in, in these storylines because it felt self-affirming. I'd watch it. I liked the resonance, that goosebump effect from that uh, level of participation mystique. But the reality is you are what you eat or what you consume. And so if you're only ever consuming your story because it feels good to feel affirmed by it over and over again, guess what keeps happening with your story, even if it actually doesn't feel good, right? So the other example I'll give of this is that I literally used to work for uh, Parks and Rec. Guess what show I loved watching while I worked at Parks and Rec? Right. You're right? Could you say you're conducting marketing on yourself in that regard? Uh, I would say it's more, I don't know that it's conducting marketing on yourself so much as it is just a deeper lack of understanding of how those stories get presented through the media versus how they actually feel to exist and express them in real life, which is why I bring up the Parks and Rec thing, right? So I was living that story, but guess what? There's no person sitting there pushing the audience laugh button when right. something happens. It doesn't actually feel funny when you're having to live it. You know, there's a production or media quality to presenting actual life as sitcom that makes us think oh this must be funny 
or oh this is who oh that's like oh wow this character is so who i am in the office right the office is another one but that <laughs> the reality is if michael scott was actually your boss or leslie nope was actually the person you had to work under it doesn't feel so funny right all of a sudden, right it, it actually feels like suffering so one of the interesting things that happens with this is sort of the um that participation mystique of thinking that this story will make you feel the way it's presented versus the reality of how it actually feels to exist in that story to you and being willing to be self-observant enough and self-honest enough to say well just because it's presented to me as something that should be funny the reality is it doesn't feel funny to me it feels like suffering or it feels like shit I need to be willing to not continue to live in this story, even though the way it's presented to me through the media or through marketing is telling me that it should feel this way. At some point, you have to be willing to accept the way that it actually feels to you instead of thinking that eventually it'll feel the way that it's shown to you through a show or through a movie. Right. Wow. Got you. So it's that sort of self-affirmation, self-justificatory like angle that you take on yourself because... I don't mean to jump to conclusions, but the a potential if we were to put ourselves our ego into into multi uh, layer, um, I guess we could say like onions metaphorically, there's that core layer potentially rippling that sort of metaphorical whisper to the other layers that you want this and then you you look for that, as you say you look for that self affirmation to then justify what deep down I don't want to say what the whole you know what you already know but what you feel to normalize but perhaps well, what, what you think you know right? right so this is i actually say all the time that knowing is the enemy of understanding because when you know something right it can't evolve anymore this you is think what that's it all, is that you think that's all there is yes yes right so you know this is uh even in the constructs of math where people think they can know a thing right it actually becomes limiting to rationally reduce in such a way if someone comes around tomorrow and has been able to somehow prove that one plus one equals something other than two, that's a fascination to me. I hope that happens. That actually seems way more interesting and, and adaptable and you know ready for evolution than someone who says, well, I just know that one plus one equals two forever and always. But if I could take it one step further, then there's that that professor that, you know, metaphorically that spent, you know, five, six decades on one line of work. And because they've done that, they feel the justification to go, no, 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 no. I know what it is. It's like, right. I, mean, I, I appreciate your hard work for many decades, but you can't you can't be the end all be all. Nor, nor can I, nor can right. I. So I see this from the psychology uh, standpoint all the time is that you're either a Freudian uh, psychologist or a Jungian psychologist. And Jungian psychology is like kind of trendy right now, ironically, because it plays into that more esoteric magician archetype. Mm. And the Freudian archetype is far more uh, existing in that sort of controlling ruler archetype. But for me, you know, I use both of their ideologies or methodologies in the places and ways that I see fit, even in session with clients. You know, for me, I have an understanding that while, while Freud thought dreams were pointless, and I find that absolutely ridiculous, I also know that he had a deep understanding of the sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, reflexes that occur for us at a sexual level that are actually based in that childlike uh, egoic development. Because in that childlike egoic development, in that unitary field that we experience, that biopsychic field, is where we begin to experience an understanding of 
the uh, erogenous zones, but from what's referred to as an alimentary uh, understanding. So alimentary is very different than sexual understanding because alimentary has an understanding of, you know, from a, re from a biology standpoint, your alimentary tract is everything to do with digestion. But that as a baby, that's everything that has to do with pleasure for you, whether that's eating or defecating, right? As weird as that sounds, you know, yeah. from a baby's standpoint, the, the ability to release uh, is something that feels really good, but that as we become adults and ego development continues to move forward and progress, those alimentary understandings of pleasure centers then become sexualized as we, as we become adults. Right. And so there's this like deeper understanding that some of the marketing even plays into that too. You know, there's a reason that food is so highly sexualized in certain commercials because it knows that at a very subliminal subconscious ego development level, it's a, all it is, is a pleasure center. And at a certain point later in life, those converge for us in a way that isn't necessarily healthy. Right. I got you. I, this is, wow. That that's, I, I have to say that's so well said. I, I, I've actually been trying to find the words to describe that for days now, and you just came out and explained it perfectly. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I, I'll thank Eric Neumann, Freud and, and Jung for teaching me. Sure. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a convergence of all of these things. I don't necessarily agree with any, all of the things that any of these three men have said, right. but that there seems to be some convergent understandings, which a lot of which has to do with that very early ego development. And then what happens to it as we become more sexually active adults. Um, and you know, that the convergence of those erogenous zones into something that can be exploited even from an archetypal expression space is something that is important for people to understand about themselves and about others too. You know, it allows you to observe others even when they're experiencing sort of egoic or archetypal programming that you can watch it happen, observe it and not judge it too. Got you. Wow. That very well said. Very well said. Well, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to add or contribute or we're, we're, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for today's episode. Oh no, I think, I think we gave a pretty big slice of the pie. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> to, to make it alimentary. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Uh, with that said, Mira, could you please, uh, I'd be more than happy to have you voice where, uh, where you could be found on social media and you name it to my audience, if that's all right. Sure. Uh, so you can go to my website, www.moonandrune.com, and there I actually talk about a lot of the practices that I use with my clients. You know, if you're someone who's interested in being guided on this journey or feel like you want help, uh, that is a large part of what I do. I work with things even like cognitive architecture remodeling, which plays a large role into archetypal expression, um, but that there's also a self-discovery section on that website that will kind of give you some spaces to open your mind a little bit and maybe explore some of these ideas on your own too. Um, and then on social media, you can find me on Instagram at moon and rune wellness or my personal account at Mira Taylor wellness. I cannot thank you enough as always. And we will see all of you next time uh, folks in the audience for the next two um, Jungian archetypes that I think we've been having so much fun on. And I think those watching or listening will probably have a, a blast as well too. Uh, observing us discuss. So thank you so much again, Mira, truly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>